0: Well, let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we know that you're real. And we know that you're present with us in this room. And we know that you're at work in our hearts. And so we ask, gracious God, that you would do your gracious work again that you would set the Lord Jesus before our eyes in all of his beauty and in all of his glory so that looking at him, we can love him and trust him more fully with greater zeal, with greater passion. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit to us. We need him to open up the word to us and to open up our hearts so that we can receive that word. We're totally dependent upon you, God. We're relying on you as we come to your word. And so help us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus Christ is the great theme of the entire Bible. Every letter, word, phrase, sentence, paragraph, page, and book is about the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father has given us the Bible that we might know, love, trust, and believe on his Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father would have us all read over the pages of the Bible and there encounter his blessed and precious Son, Jesus. We also must say that all the Bible was written under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, like God the Father, loves to magnify, glorify, and testify to the greatness of Of God the Son, Jesus. God the Holy Spirit is always at work using the Bible to introduce us to and to familiarize us with God the Son, Jesus. And so as we open our Bibles together, let's be confident that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are eager to use these very words to present Jesus to us. To present Jesus to us in all of his enthralling beauty, in all of his wonderful might and majesty. Today, we'll be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 35. And in these few verses, we do indeed find the Lord Jesus presented to us in all of his enthralling beauty. And so let's just take a while together uh, to think on the Lord Jesus. Look with me at verses 32 through 34. In verse 32, we see that Jesus was walking with his, with his disciples up to the great city of Jerusalem. As they walk walked, Jesus at some point turned to his disciples and said, this is verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, And after three days, he will rise. These few verses tell us a great deal about the Lord Jesus, don't they? They show us his determination to suffer for the sake of his people. The Lord Jesus walked up to Jerusalem knowing that he would be handed over to the hostile authorities, knowing that he would be condemned to death, knowing that he would be handed over to the governing authorities for execution knowing that he would be mocked, knowing that he would be spat on, knowing that he would be flogged, killed, and indeed after he was killed, that he would rise again. The whole horrific reality of what was going to happen to him was, was clear and vivid in the Lord Jesus' mind. And yet he walked up to Jerusalem with unflinching and unwavering determination, unflinching and unwavering resolve to do what he had come into the world to do. Jesus, of course, knew that he would rise again. He knew that the resurrection would follow the crucifixion. But that doesn't diminish the fact that crucifixion was intensely painful. And even the bravest of people would would think again about walking straight towards the cross. It was unimaginably painful and shameful. And so what we might ask propelled the Lord Jesus to walk up to Jerusalem. Why was he so unflinching and unwavering? in his resolve to walk up to Jerusalem. We know that it was no external force that propelled the Lord Jesus. It was not that his disciples dragged him up to Jerusalem against his will. Rather, we know that it was some internal force that propelled the Lord Jesus forward. It was something within the Lord's heart that caused him to walk up to Jerusalem. We find the answer to our question in verse 45 of our text. And you can read it along with me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me read that verse again, because it offers up to us a clear and succinct truth about the Lord Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this one verse, we're told why the Lord Jesus came into the world and we're told why he was willing to walk up to Jerusalem. We're told that he did this to lovingly serve his beloved humanity. We see in this verse that the Lord Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is rightly defined as an act of service. Sorry, everything's loose and sagging on me up here. There we go. Let me repeat that. We see in this verse that the Lord Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is rightly defined as an act of service. To be more precise, it was to serve many people that the Lord Jesus lived, died, and rose again. The Lord Jesus made this point by setting up a contrast. The Lord Jesus said again, this is verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Right, there's the contrast. He says, I'm not here to be served, but rather I've showed up so that I can serve. This contrast tells us that Jesus' purpose was not to gather to himself a great host of servants that would do his bidding, but rather to set himself at the service of humanity, humbly working away for their happiness, blessedness, and salvation. To wrap our minds around this great truth, it might be ha- helpful perhaps to think of a king happily doing the work of a peasant, or a general happily serving as the lowest-ranking soldier, or a ship captain happily swabbing the deck, or a high court judge happily taking the place of a convicted criminal. It is one of the glories of the gospel that Jesus, who was high and mighty, came into the world, not to lord his power and authority over people, but rather to be a servant. And so here we're thinking about what theologians often call Jesus' condescension. Now when we're talking about condescension with regard to Jesus, we're not talking about him looking down his nose at people or feeling superior to them and so on like that, but rather we mean the exact opposite. Jesus' condescension is all about his willing, willingly taking a humble and lowly position of service. When we refer to Jesus' condescension, We're referring to that great downgrade, that great humiliation, that great humbling that Jesus was willing to undertake so that he might give up himself as a ransom for many. Now Jesus' beautiful and remarkable condescension is expressed well in a prayer called Love Lusters at Calvary. It can be found in the book The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers from the Puritans. And just listen to this one section of this great prayer. The prayer is called Love Lusters at Calvary. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, athirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted. Made a shame that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. Groaned that I might have endless song. Endured all pain that I might have unfading health. Bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head that I might uplift mine. Experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. Closed his eyes in death. That I might gaze on unclouded brightness, he expired that I might forever live. And this prayer helps us get at the very heart of Jesus' condescension. Jesus exchanged all of his blessedness for all of our cursedness. This prayer also exposes the meaning of the word ransom. Jesus said that he came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is, of course, an amount of money which is demanded in exchange for someone's life or freedom. The Bible teaches us that our sinfulness, our wickedness, has saddled us with a debt that we need to pay, but cannot pay. While we live, this debt threatens to damn us for eternity. While we live, this debt destroys our relationship with God and sets us up against God, owing him something we cannot pay. But the glory of Jesus Christ is that as both God and man, he enters the world and pays the debt that we cannot pay for ourselves. He does so by offering up his own life as the payment of that debt. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Colossae, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. That stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There Paul is getting at what Jesus is getting at. right? By his cross, by his death, Jesus paid the debt that we owed so that we didn't have to pay it for ourselves. Because the truth is we couldn't, even if we wanted to. We behold Jesus in all of his enthralling beauty in this text because we see him as the son of man, the eternal son of God, who came into the world with all humility and humiliation, and then gave himself as payment for our debt. John Bunyan, that great Christian writer of the 17th century, once wrote, Thou son of the blessed, what grace was manifest in thy condescension? Grace brought thee down from heaven, grace stripped thee of thy glory, grace made thee poor and despicable, Grace made thee bear such burdens of sin, such burdens of sorrow, such burdens of God's curse as are unspeakable. As you know, John Bunyan rightly uses the word grace because this is what we see in action. Jesus graciously paying a debt he did not owe for the sake of the people who owed it. Dwelling on the condescension of Christ and on the ransom that he paid, we also find the important doctrine of, well theologians call it penal substitutionary atonement the doctrine is simply this our sin is atoned for dealt with and removed by Jesus Christ suffering its punishment and penalty as our substitute this is what uh, Martin Luther called the great exchange right? the exchange is that we give Jesus all of our sinfulness and cursedness and in an exchange we receive all of his blessedness it's a good deal as far as we're concerned. And it was a deal that Jesus gladly made because of the great love that he has for us. This idea is absolutely central to understanding Jesus' whole purpose in the world, the significance of his death on the cross, and why his gospel is, in fact, good news. Horatius Bonner put it this way, If Christ be not the substitute, he is nothing to the sinner. If he did not die as the sin-bearer, he has died in vain. Let us not be deceived on this point. The very essence of Christ's deliverance is the substitution of himself for us, his life for ours. He did not come to risk his life. He came to die. He did not redeem us by a little loss, a little sacrifice, a little labor, a little suffering. He redeemed us to God by his blood, the precious blood of Christ. He gave all he had, even his life for us. And you know, in the providence of God, we have already sung this morning some great hymns which, you know, promote this idea. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners go beneath that flood, and all their guilty stains are washed away. And so I hope that as we take all of these ideas together, Jesus' condescension, his grace, the ransom that he pays, and this idea of him being the substitute, penal substitutionary atonement, I hope that you're getting a fresh look at Jesus's beauty and goodness. If you've been in the church for a little while, these ideas may be familiar to you, but I hope that they haven't grown dull over the years, right? Psalm 10 or sorry, Mark 10:45 is one of those great verses in the Bible which just puts the gospel truth so succinctly. The Son of man came into the world not to serve but to not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so now that we've spent some time thinking on Jesus, his beauty, and his glorious good news, we can now look at the middle part of our text. Here we find two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, trying to gain some preeminence for themselves. James and John had a sense that Jesus' ministry was moving towards glory. James and John had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration When Jesus became radiant and they had seen Jesus' glory, now they approached Jesus and asked that when he came into his glory that they might be able to sit on his right hand and on his left hand. They didn't dare suggest that they would unseat Jesus, but they wanted to be second best and third best for sure. And we know that the other disciples actually had similar ambitions because when James and John suggested that they might be second place and third place, the rest of the disciples got angry, right? Perhaps some of you can think of experiences like that in your own life where someone asks for the best spot and you think to yourself, well, man, I'd like the best spot too, right? And so this isn't just James and John's problem, it's all the disciples' problems. All of them are ambitious to have the highest place. Now, in this middle part of the story, we see that James and John and the rest of the disciples make three mistakes in their approach to Jesus. First, we see that James and John, along with the other disciples, misunderstood the pathway to glory. It is likely that James and John had some vision of earthly success still in their minds when they asked Jesus their questions. Perhaps James and John were suspecting that Jesus was making his way up to Jerusalem to seize power from Herod and Pontius Pilate and set himself up as king. Whatever the case may be, Jesus' response to James and John shows us that James and John were looking at the pathway to glory with what you might call rose-colored glasses. Jesus responded to James and John by saying, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? it is with these words that Jesus taught his disciples, that the pathway to glory is necessarily the pathway of suffering. Jesus himself, before he rose again, ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of God, had to walk the hard road to the cross. He was crucified, dead and buried, before he rose again. So it is with those who follow Jesus. Earlier in in this gospel story, Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus does not rebuke his disciples for wanting to be with him in glory, but he does want them to know what the path ahead looks like. He wants them to be ready for the adversity, persecutions, and sufferings that come along with being a disciple of Jesus. And so that's the first mistake that the disciples made. They looked at the pathway to glory with rose-colored glasses. They misunderstood the fact that one could only get to glory by going through adversity. Now, the second mistake that they make is that they were a little bit overconfident about what they could endure for the sake of Jesus, right? They say, oh, we're able, (laughs) which I just think is funny because they don't even know what Jesus is talking about at that point. But they're confident that they can go through what the Lord Jesus Christ goes through. And once again, Jesus in his gentleness and grace doesn't rebuke them, but rather promises that they will indeed go through the kind of suffering that he went through. We know that James was martyred for the faith, and John is one of the few disciples who died of old age, but he certainly did not have an easy life. He too had to face adversities and persecutions. And we know that when Jesus was um, crucified, that the disciples fled, right? John stuck around, but still, he didn't stick around for long. He watched the crucifixion, and then he got out of Dodge, And so the disciples weren't even able to endure uh, the shame of Jesus being crucified. But later, as their discipleship continued under the power of the Holy Spirit, they became the kind of men who were able to endure. And so that's the second mistake. They were proud about what they could endure. And then third, they misunderstood the nature of true leadership, which is why Jesus offers the teaching at the end of the exchange He says, you're not to lord your power over others like the Gentiles do, like the rulers of the world do, but rather you're all to be servants. He who is greatest in my kingdom is he who is the greatest servant. And Jesus even goes so far as to say, he who is the slave of all. Right. And then he says, for even the Son of Man came into the world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, it's beautiful to think that the kingdom of God is a place where everyone is lovingly serving everybody else. Right? People aren't gunning for their own place. People aren't gunning for their own position. Rather, everyone is lovingly serving everyone else. And you can close your eyes and you can imagine a world like that. And soon you realize in a world like that, every need is fulfilled. Right? Because everybody is working together to lovingly serve one another. Now, Some of us hear this text, and instantly our consciences convict us and make us guilty and think, well, I'm not serving hard enough, right? Some of our consciences work in that way. But I don't want you to leave with the application that you simply have to serve more or serve harder. Rather, I want you to do what I think this text is inviting us to do, which is to gaze on Jesus the servant savior, the great servant, the God who became the slave of all, gaze upon him, and as you gaze upon him, your hearts will be melted. Your hearts will be melted as you look at that savior. And then the Holy Spirit will work in his mysterious way in your life, and you'll become a more servant-minded person. I like to think of it this way. When my mother or my wife or some other kind person makes me a delicious meal and I've enjoyed that lovely meal, when the meal's done often what I want to do is get up and do the dishes. Because I think, man you've just given me this fantastic meal and my way of saying thank you is that I want to do the dishes now. Well similarly, as we look at Jesus and as we look at all that he's done for us, when we consider how he has served us, how he has become humble and lowly and served us Something within us says, now I want to serve. Now I want to get up and do what I've just seen my Savior do. And so the thing that makes us servants, the, things that, the thing that makes us servant-hearted is being served by Jesus himself, seeing the good things that he has done for us. And that will work in your heart in such a way that you become more servant-hearted. This is the same way that love works too, isn't it? The more you're loved, the more easy it is to be a loving person. The more someone takes joy in you, the more easy it is for you to take joy in other people. And that's the wonderful thing about Jesus, is that the more and more we get to know him, the more and more we gaze upon him in the word, the more and more that the Holy Spirit sets him before us and teaches us who he is, the more and more we become like him. And I'm pretty adamant on this point, because some people's consciences are just tricky for a preacher to deal with, because they think, okay, I'm just going to go serve more. I'm going to get some bigger calluses on my hands. right? That's not what I want the application to be. The application should be, look at Jesus. And as we gaze upon he who is the greatest servant of all, the greatest lover of all, the greatest joy giver of all, then we too will become better servants, better lovers, and more joyful. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> well, let's pray together. Gracious and loving Jesus... The truth is that we're so often like Brother James and Brother John. We often mistake what the Christian life is going to look like. We're often overconfident in our own power, in our own ability to endure. And we often forget what it is to be a child of the kingdom. A good friend of mine once said, Lord, uh, throw bricks because I'm thick. We're often thick, Lord. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would melt our hearts and give us a glimpse of yourself, and that in gazing upon you, we would become more like you. And we want this desperately, Jesus, because we know that as we become more like you, we will glorify you, we ourselves will become holier and happier, our hope will increase. And so we pray for your own sake, Jesus, make us like yourself, by your Spirit. Help us to serve one another based upon the service that you've already rendered unto us. We pray these things in your name, dear Lord. Amen.